You know, this is one of those Sundays where I wish that I could have given the message first and then we could have sung the songs because if you're going to be able to remember the songs, you're going to see just how true, how deep, and how rich every song we sang this morning really is. If you have your Bibles or mobile devices, uh, turn in them to Romans chapter 6. Now, this is not, I understand, a traditional Easter passage. Normally, we go to the end of one of the four Gospels and read the account of the resurrection. This may not be a traditional passage, but I assure you, it will be one of the most encouraging passages that you've ever read on Easter. Before we dig in, however, I want to ask you a question. What practical difference on a daily basis does Easter make in your life? Not a rhetorical question. I want you to take a moment. What daily practical difference does Easter make in your relationships? In your marriage? in your parenting, in your priorities, in your vocation, in your finances. I mean, what is the so what of Easter? Is it, is it just one day a year where we all get together and sing, Christ the Lord is risen today, and then go back to life as usual? C.S. Lewis addresses the so what of Easter in his children's series, The Chronicles of Narnia. Probably the most classic passage in the whole series of books. Some of you have heard me share it before. If you're unaware of the series, uh, Lewis creates a world called Narnia. In Narnia, it's sort of like a parallel world to ours. Actually, you know what it is? It's an allegory of the reality of life and all the truths of God's redemptive plan. And there's symbolism throughout. So Narnia is really sort of our broken world. Because in Narnia, it's always winter but never Christmas. The world has fallen and it is under the spell of the white witch who is the symbol of sin and Satan and death. There are children from our world that go through a magic wardrobe and end up in Narnia where all the animals talk. And they learn that the great king of Narnia, who is said to be on the move, his name is Aslan, and he, of course, is the symbol of the Christ figure. Aslan visits Narnia. Narnia thaws. Father Christmas comes. And everyone begins to hear, Aslan is on the move. One of the children from our world is named Edmund. 
Edmund has a sweet tooth. He sneaks into the white witch's castle and steals some of her candy, Turkish delights. Because of that, the white witch captures Edmund and makes him her slave. This, of course, is the symbol of the fall of Adam and Eve in Genesis 3 into sin. And Aslan comes because the children ask him to please free their brother. Aslan goes with the white witch and they talk for a while. Aslan comes out looking very somber and says to Edmund, you're free to go. The children don't know what has happened. They're glad to have their brother, but Aslan looks troubled. Of course, what happened was Aslan made a deal. Actually, not a deal. He offered himself in Edmund's place. So the white witch and all of her followers take Aslan and he allows himself to be shaved, humiliated, tied down on this stone table which represents the holiness and laws of God, like the Ten Commandments, the stone tablets, the stone table. And there on the table, the white witch puts Aslan to death. The children have no idea what to do now. They go off, they're scared, they cry. A couple days later, Susan and Lucy, two of the other children from our world, go back to the stone table to visit Aslan's body. But when they arrive, all they see are the ropes that tied Aslan down. But there's no great lion there anymore. And they notice that the stone table is broken. They look at each other and they say, What is it? Is it magic? And suddenly they hear a deep voice behind them say, yes, it is. It is very deep magic. Now, of course, C.S. Lewis doesn't believe in magic. He's using magic as a symbol of the wonder of the good news and the power of grace through the gospel, through the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And the children say, but Aslan, we don't understand The white witch talked about the deep magic that the emperor beyond the sea, God the Father, wrote into Narnia from the beginning of time, and that's why Edmund was supposed to be killed, but then you took his place. And Aslan said, oh, yes, children, the white witch knew about the deep magic, but if she would have gone back a little further, before time even began, she would have known that there's a deeper magic still. That if an innocent victim who had done everything right, 
willingly gives himself in the place of a traitor. The stone table would crack and death itself would begin working backwards. C.S. Lewis understood the so what of Easter. Because of Easter, in every one of our lives, in every area of our lives, for those who know Christ, the power of death and sin and evil by the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ is actually, truly, really, and supernaturally working backwards. The great reversal has begun. And if you know Christ, it continues every day. And yet, how many of us, A, even understand that, and B, experience that. See, the problem with so many of us is we look at Good Friday and Easter as merely historical facts. And of course, they are. But for the Christian, Good Friday and Easter are not merely historical facts. They actually become our own individual, and corporate personal experiences. Romans 6 unveils all of these truths. Romans 6 calls us to realize that because of Easter, we can walk in newness of life. Let's all stand out of reverence for God's Word. I'm going to read Romans 6, verses 1 to 14. This is God's Word. What shall we say then? Are we continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been free, set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lived, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not therefore sin reign in your mortal body 
to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace." This is one of the most incredible passages in all of Scripture. And God is going to unfold it to us this morning. This is God's inspired, infallible, inerrant, and authoritative word. It is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And it is able to do a work of grace in our hearts this morning. Let's pray. God, these are some uh, deep words. I guess using Lewis, the deeper magic of the gospel. So Holy Spirit, we need you to move among us. Come, in Jesus' name, amen. Go ahead and take a seat. So what is the deeper magic of the gospel? Three elements to it. Of course, it's not magic. It's the supernatural power of the gospel. But it changes our lives. First of all, Walk in newness of life by embracing a new identity. You know, as we walk on planet Earth, we see a singular human race. Every single person in the world is an image bearer, filled with dignity, worth, value. Everyone in the entire world, an image bearer. But in Romans 5, the chapter before this, Paul writes of two spheres of image bearers. One group of image bearers are in Adam, and one group of image bearers are in Christ. Now, every single one of us in the whole world is conceived and born into Adam. We all have a physical connection to Adam. Every single one of us ultimately are related because we all go back to to a singular pair of parents, Adam and Eve. But the Bible says we also have a spiritual connection to Adam. When Adam sinned and fell, the guilt And pollution of Adam's sin was passed down to us, a physical and spiritual connection to Adam. And we have an identity as people in Adam. Romans 5 talks about it, Ephesians 2 talks about it, lots of places in Scripture talks about it. And it's many of the things that we often feel as human beings. What's our identity in Adam? Well, we're spiritually dead. We're alienated from God. We're condemned, rejected, and without hope in the world. That's how we're conceived and born into this world, as sons and daughters of Adam. But Romans 6 teaches that when anyone repents and turns to Christ and transfers their trust from their own efforts to know, love, and be saved, 
and turns to Christ and His finished work as our substitute, that we become part of a new humanity. We become part of a new sphere. We're transferred from being sons and daughters of Adam, and we become sons and daughters of the living God through Christ. So we're born naturally and physically as sons and daughters of Adam. We're born again supernaturally, spiritually, to be children of God. Now here's what Paul's saying in this text. When anyone repents and trusts in Christ, they are no longer defined by who they were in Adam. That identity is wiped out. It is put to death with Christ on the cross. And as Christ was raised from the dead, whoever repents and puts their Christ to trust in Christ is supernaturally raised from the dead here and now. Not in the future, although that's going to happen too. But there is a first resurrection that occurs when someone trusts in Christ. And you are raised with a new life and you are given a new identity. You are no longer condemned. You are beyond condemnation. You are no longer rejected. You are no longer an orphan. You are loved forever and ever unchangingly by the God of the universe. Now, how does this happen? What is the deeper magic? Paul explains it so clearly here. Look at verse 3. All of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death. Now, I know the first thing that comes to your mind. You're thinking about water baptism. Water baptism is only a sign that points to the truth that Paul is teaching here. What Paul is teaching here is that when someone repents and puts their trust in Christ, the Holy Spirit baptizes them supernaturally and spiritually into Jesus Christ and creates a connection through time and space with Jesus on the cross and with Jesus at the resurrection. So that when someone repents and turns to Christ, they have in fact, truly, but spiritually and mysteriously died. And the old identity is put to death. It's buried and gone. And through the baptism of the Holy Spirit that occurs at conversion that you don't sink, seek. Notice it says, we're baptized. We have nothing to do with it. The Spirit does it when we trust in Christ. We're baptized and united to the resurrection of Christ so that really and truly, spiritually and mysteriously, a Christian has been raised from the dead. This has happened. This isn't make-believe. This isn't, hey, picture in your mind something like this maybe would occur and have it motivate you. No! Paul is saying this actually happens to Christians. 
I'm not yelling at you. I'm really excited. <laughs> Look at verse 5. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, certainly we will be united with him in a resurrection like his. You see that? Here's, here's, here's what happens. See if I can. Let, let's say that these, these notes are me conceived and born in Adam, filled with marks, the marks of my sin, the truth of God's word concerning my judgment and condemnation because of God's holiness and my rebellion. This Bible represents Jesus, and all the marks here represent all of his obedience, his perfection, his being eternally loved by the Father and the Spirit. Represents the message of his substitutionary death, his resurrection. When someone repents and puts their faith in Christ, the Holy Spirit takes us as we were in Adam and places us into or baptizes us or unites us to Christ. The Holy Spirit goes through time and space with our lives and places us into Jesus so that in some sense, the person we once were dies with Jesus on the cross. And then somehow, spiritually, through the mystical work of the Holy Spirit, the deeper magic of the gospel, God raises us with Christ to a new life. Do you ever listen to yourself talk? I do. You're such a disappointment. Are you ever going to get it right? God's had enough. All right, now you cross the line. Oh, you jerk. You see, that's our old identity in Adam. If you know Christ, that person's dead. And now you're in Christ. Beloved, accepted, delighted in. Righteous, adopted, forever secure, rejoiced over, sung over, ever held by the God of the universe. How does death need to work backwards when it comes to your identity? Are you living in the deeper magic? 
experience the newness of life by embracing a new identity. Secondly, walk in newness of life by embracing a new liberty. In verses 1 and 2, Paul talks about how some people are saying that if grace is true, if what I just said is true, if your identity now is new and unchanging, well, then what motivation is there to actually live a good life? I mean, if God's going to love me no matter what, if I'm always delighted in by God, why should I care about being holy? Why should I care about being godly? Well, here's the answer. If grace was just a concept of, gee, isn't it great that I'm loved and maybe it'll motivate me to be a better person, well, yeah, then I think that's a legitimate question. But what Paul is saying when he says in verse 2, how can we who died to sin still live in it? He's saying grace isn't a concept. Grace is a power. Again, he's going back to the deeper magic. Grace means you, if you know Christ, the old person has died. And a new person has been resurrected. You're not, if you know Christ, you are not the same person you were when you were born. Look, does this blow your mind? It blows mine. But this is the Christian life. This sounds so deep, doesn't it? No, this is basic Easter 101. If, if we don't know this, we don't know Easter. Easter. So that grace not merely gives us a new identity. Grace gives us a new nature. You have a new power. You have a new heart. Part of the resurrection, part of being united with Christ in His resurrection is raised from the dead of being spiritually rebellious and raised from the dead with a new heart. So you're, it's not like sin is sort of giving you a heart attack and God gets out the paddle, and then you just sort of walk again. No, you have a complete heart transplant. You are dead. You're not resuscitated, you're resurrected. Do you hear me? Do you hear me? Folks, this isn't make-believe. This isn't some, like, philosophy class. Like, hmm, Bob said some really interesting things today. What amazing theories. Maybe if I think about them, I'll be a better person. No, we're talking about spiritual realities here. <laughs> if you know Christ... You've been raised from the dead. You have a new power. You have a new liberty with respect to life. Now, see, Christian liberty is not the freedom to live however you feel like living. Christian liberty is the freedom to live the way God wants you to live. And it is the desire 
to live the way God wants you to live. If you've been raised from the dead, God has given you a new heart with new desires so that who you were in Adam at the core was a rebel. But being raised from the dead, who you now are at your core is wanting to walk with God. And that's why Paul says, it is inconceivable for a person to truly be a Christian and continue in sin. Now, before you all freak out, he's not talking about if you ever sin, you may not be a Christian. He's saying that it is inconceivable for a Christian who's been raised from the dead to choose to continually walk in unrepentant sin. It's, it's, it's impossible. Why? <laughs> because they've been raised from the dead. Now look, I'm a mess. I'm a mess. There are so many of areas of my life that this doesn't seem true. In so many ways, I, I feel like I'm struggling with the same sins I struggled with before I was a Christian. But God says, you, Bob, on January of 1980, were baptized into Christ, connected to him in his death so that you died connected with him in his resurrection so that you are a new person. You have been born again. You are a new creation. Old things have passed. New things have come. You have a new liberty to face and overcome sin in your life, in your marriage, in your parenting in your vocation, in your personal character. If you're a Christian, you can fight against sin in your life. And you can strive for righteousness in your life because you have been given a new liberty. Look at verse 6 again. The old self was crucified that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. In other words, sin is seen as a power, a master, a ruler for those who were in Adam. But when you become a Christian, you're baptized into Christ, you're united with his death and resurrection, sin is no longer your master. Truly, you're free from the rule of sin. Sin's still present. It's not annihilated, but it's dethroned. And then it says, if we have died with Christ, verse 8, we believe we'll also live with him. Again, not talking about the future resurrection. Not talking about the end of the world here. There will be a future resurrection. That's just not what Paul's talking about in Romans 6. Paul's talking about the resurrection of a Christian at conversion by being connected, baptized, and united with Christ. That resurrection. We have a new freedom. Look at verse 7. The one who has been died has been set free from sin. And then he says in verse 14, sin will have no dominion over you. You're not under the law, but under grace. See, union with Christ is, is two things. First of all, I said it's us in Christ. He, here's, here's old me in Adam. Here's Jesus. Conversion, placed into, baptized, connected to, united to Christ. 
This is me in Christ. When God sees me, he sees Jesus. That's my identity. But union with Christ is not just me in Christ. It's Christ in me. Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. Really? It is no longer I, who, me who was born, conceived and born, lived for a while without Christ. It is no longer I. I've been crucified with Christ. But Christ now lives in me. And the life I now live, the new identity, with the new liberty, I live by faith, trusting continually in my new identity and my new liberty. And Christ lives through me. See, the law, being under the law meant the law told us what to do. It didn't give us any power to do it. That's Adam. That's who we're born as. We know right from wrong. We have no power to do it or no desire to do it. Now, I'm not saying people are as bad as they could be, but that's who we are in Adam. The law simply tells us right and wrong. There's absolutely no power in the law to help us obey right and avoid wrong. Grace is who we are in Christ. It's a new realm. It's a new power. It's a new liberty. John Bunyan put it this way. Remember John Bunyan? He wrote Pilgrim's Progress. By the way, you know that that is the second most read book of the English language in all of history. Bible's number one. Pilgrim's Progress, number two. Have you read it? Incredible book. Another Christian allegory. John Bunyan said this. Run, John, run, the law commands, but gives us neither feet nor hands. Far better news the gospel brings. It bids us fly and gives us wings. You know Christ, you've been raised with him. New heart, new nature, new power, new spirit. You're a new creation. You can say, no to sin, yes to righteousness. And if you fail, you repent. You affirm your identity has not changed in Christ. You appropriate the power of the liberty that God says you have because you've been baptized, united, and connected to Christ in his resurrection, and you fight a new day against sin in your life and righteousness. And then lastly, and by the way, I know we're going long. I'm good with it. <laughs> Experience newness of life by embracing a new responsibility. Okay, there is a life to live, right? We do have a new identity. That identity is defined by who we are in Christ, not by how we act. That's the good news. There's a new liberty, though. We have a new power, a new heart, a new response, ability. And then there is a life to live. But here's the catch. What do you think the greatest responsibility of the Christian is? To pray, maybe? To read the Bible? Go to church to love others? Well, those are all certainly Christian responsibilities, but they are not the chief Christian responsibility. The chief greatest Christian responsibility is in verse 11. You must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. 
That's the greatest Christian responsibility in life. Consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. In other words, keep on preaching point one and point two to yourself every day. You have a new identity. Who you were and how you were defined being in Adam is gone. It's dead. You've been raised from the dead. You've been given a new identity. Your life is hidden with Christ. Preach that to yourself until you believe it. And when you believe it, new power from the Holy Spirit falls upon you. And you are given fresh desire, fresh motivation, and fresh power to say no to sin in your life and to pursue righteousness. This is the deeper magic. This is how it works. This is the Christian life. Paul's not saying when he says consider yourselves, pretend if it's, as if it's true. Live in a world of make-believe. No, what Paul is saying is you need to remember it really is true. And the more you remember that and believe that, the more you're going to be changed supernaturally by the power of God. It's, it's in the present tense. Keep on continually regarding yourself as dead to sin and alive to God. Then, as he talks about constantly the responsibility of believing points one and point two, a new liberty and a, and a new identity, then he does say in verse 12, don't let sin reign. Notice the therefore. That's key. In light of the reality of your death and resurrection in Christ, in light of that, therefore, because that's true, don't let sin reign in your life. Verse 13, don't present your members to sin as instruments of righteousness. Don't use your abilities, your minds, your time, your finances. Don't offer them as instruments of sin. Because you're no longer a slave to sin. You've been set at liberty. You've been liberated. So now, offer them as slaves to righteousness, not as an illustration, but in reality. We have changed masters, truly. Not, not like, hey, I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided. We do decide. But it's not just a decision. You've been changed. I've been changed. And we can say no to sin, yes to righteousness. And Paul here at the end says, so now do it. See, not Nike Christianity, not just do it. But in light of all I've said this morning, now do it. Live in light of who you are. As a matter of fact, the Christian life is becoming in daily practice who God already made you to be at conversion. You hear that? The Christian life is becoming, in daily practice, who God has already declared you to be at your conversion. You're to get more and more used to the fact that you are no longer in Adam. You are now in Christ. Look at verse 13. Present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. Again, not as those who use the illustration of, hey, just think about someone who become death to life. How would they live? No. <laughs> you have been brought from death to life. This is the so what of Easter. Augustine, 
one of the great theologians and pastors of the fourth century, lived a pretty ungodly life before he met Christ. But once he met Christ, he realized he had a new identity, supernaturally. He realized he had a new liberty. He realized he had a new responsibility. And he was in Rome one day doing business, and across the way, there was a woman with whom he had had an inappropriate relationship before he was converted. And she called out to him because she saw him, and she said, Augustine, Augustine, look, it is I. And he looked at her, and he remembered. He reckoned. He considered he, who he now was. And he turned, and he said, yes, but it is not I. It is not I. Who are you? Do you know Christ? If you don't know Christ, you're still in Adam. And all the positive thinking in the world is not going to change your identity. You are who you are. But if you repent, put your trust in Christ. You're united to Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. You're given a new identity and a new power. And you can live a new life. And you can change. And your self-image can change. Your self-concept can change. Everything about you can change. Because he changes it. Because he has been raised from the dead. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, help us to understand it. But more than understand it, help us to perceive the truths, the, and Lord, I, I hope you don't mind us saying this, the, the deeper magic that you've placed into Narnia through the life, death, resurrection of Jesus. Oh God, thank you for giving us a new identity. Thank you for giving us a new liberty. And Lord, may we rejoice that we have a new responsibility. God, if there's anybody here that doesn't know Jesus, may today be the day of their salvation. And Lord, may the rest of us show the world that Jesus is alive because our lives are so different. Help us to walk in newness of life. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.